thing that I always see is that Anna's lucky she didn't have her head cut off yeah. and things like that. She had no reason to fear that. And I don't know why it's common to, to see that. Oh, you know, she, she could have had her head chopped off. Well, no, there was no reason for it. Mm-hmm. So I do think that she was scared for a multitude of reasons. She's a foreign princess in a foreign country. She cannot go home because there's a war brewing between her brother and the Holy Roman Emperor and possibly France. So it was just dangerous for her to go home. And she's trapped. She's trapped in England. And now she went all this way to become queen. And she is reduced to nobody. Today we have a special show. It's not just me talking. Um, we're going to do an interview with Heather Darcy, who has written an excellent book. Uh, we're going to talk about that a bit later. But for now, Heather, how are you? How's uh, how's lockdown going? It's 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 going. Um, I'm still going to work a little bit here and there. I'm a, I'm an attorney during the day, and I'm a public defender, so I work. I'm an essential worker out here, so I still do go to work a bit. Um, other than that, just trying to stay healthy and make sure my family's okay. How about you? It's going well. I'm I'm a teacher by trade, so I've been doing a lot of time and a lot of um stuff at home. Not so much yeah. teaching because I'm newly qualified, so mm-hmm. I was first to go. Uh, out of the schools um <clears throat> so a lot of time I've spent reading for my new job which I start in September and great and they're uh, recording podcasts basically so mm-hmm. that's been my life and <clears throat> I don't know what's like where you are but for me when we first started the only reason the only excuse you had for leaving the house was to do shopping or to go for a walk um so April was rough I don't know what it was like for you uh, May got a bit easier, yeah. and then June, and then suddenly they started open, opening pubs, which was great news. How's how's Illinois? Illinois is interesting. Um, there's been a legal battle over whether or not the governor's executive orders concerning the shutdown were, whether he was able to do that or whether he had exceeded his power. But we were effectively locked down this all of March and April and May, and uh, there's a four no a five phase program five meaning completely reopened and we're in Mm -hmm. phase four and we'll be in this for I don't know how long but uh restaurants I think you can go to eat inside a restaurant but no one's really doing that and then face masks whenever you go inside a store and just they finally reopened the golf courses such that you could have two people in a cart a month ago so that was kind of nice I like golf that was nice yeah you need friends to do that or actually play golf, unfortunately. Yes. Those kind of friends. And it rains quite a lot, as I'm sure you're aware. Up in the yes. North, <laughs> uh, which does not help. No. Uh, <laughs> um, your book, Anna, Duchess of Cleves, the King's Beloved Sister. So that's that's a book we're going to talk about today. I thought a really good way that we could start this maybe a little bit um, different was I went around a few of my friends who were all educated in England and all learned probably in primary school, which is elementary school about uh, Henry's six wives. So their opinion of her or their, what they think they know, I thought it would be interesting for you to either confirm it's true or dispel them completely, if that's okay. Um, Absolutely. So is first of all, is it Anne or is it Anna? It depends on who you ask. So she was, as a German woman, her birth name was Anna, but as was the custom back then, when she moved to the country where she would be someone's wife, basically her name was changed to Anne. Uh, just like Catherine of Aragon, her name, I believe, was Catalina. But then when she moved to England, she became Catherine. 
All right, okay. So, we'll, yeah, I'll I'll stick to I'll I'll try and stick to Anna, but uh, the odd Anne might just slip out. Uh, no <laughs> worries. I... Say, what's confusing too is throughout her life, she signed her name in different ways depending on who she was writing to. So, if she was writing something to Henry, she would sign as Anne, the daughter of Cleves. But if she was writing to her brother, she would sign as Anna. So she she used both names throughout her life. Right. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Absolutely. Okay. Well, the first one comes from uh, one of my friends. Portraits made her look more attractive. That's why Henry agreed to marry her. There's a couple things with that. So generally speaking, portraits made everyone more attractive. If you Mm -hmm. look at any kind of portraits from back then, there are no scars on anyone's face and there are no moles or anything like that. So what I can say about Anna is she did have a scar. I believe it was on her left forehead from when she and her sister had gotten into a fight and her sister threw some... Um, scissors at her head (laughs) and cut her head and she did likely and we're not talking a massive gash but it did leave a mark on her forehead and also she likely had some smallpox scars but that was really common back then right I think that the big misconception about whether or not Anna was attractive or not comes from two things the English account of Anna's first meeting with Henry which was created by Cromwell after he found out that he was going to get his head chopped off Yep. And also all of the depositions that took place to have their marriage annulled, where Henry said that one of the reasons why he couldn't consummate marriage with Anna was he found her unattractive. So he never actually called her ugly. He just said he found her unattractive. And so he was able to consummate the marriage. Oh, right. You just answered uh, another one of those because one of the other ones was was uh, the marriage was never un- never consummated. And we don't know that. Uh, Part of the reason why it would be important to have the marriage annulled on grounds of non-consummation was twofold. First of all, it prevented an expensive divorce, and Henry didn't want to have a divorce. And also by effectively having Anna declared a virgin and having her agree to being a virgin, she could then go on to remarry. Yeah, that makes sense. The other one on here was Henry was angry when he first met her because she was unattractive completely false as far as I can tell. (laughs) So we have to keep in mind that most of these arguments or the accounts of Anna's relationship with Henry or marriage with Henry were created during the time when his counselors were trying to create this annulment or trying to affect the annulment. And so all the depositions and the testimony, the alleged testimony that we have from Cromwell were all collected in late June and early July of 1540. So there is a German account of their meeting and that's detailed more in my book, but they got along just fine. (laughs) Henry and Anna spent the rest of the day together. Henry overnighted somewhere not far from Rochester so that he could go and meet with her again in the morning, but was far enough away so as not to dishonor her. And he actually met with her again the next morning before their official meeting. Yeah. That moves uh, quite nicely onto the last one, which is one of my friends said after the marriage, Henry treated her really well and they were like brother and sister. He did. So he formally adopted her as formally as you could as his sister. Uh So that made her a part of the royal family. And this was a huge sign of respect. I think that he felt bad for her, that she was effectively a political refugee in England, which we can get into that a little bit more later. But Uh I think he did genuinely care about her. And I think that had the political situation been different, he might have stayed married to her. The last one on here, which is just something that I found online while I was doing a bit of research for this interview, was 
you can say say if this is true or not. Anne's grandfather had sixty three illegitimate children before he married Anne's grandmother. That's correct. That's yep. He was known as the childmaker. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm so glad so, that's true. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wow. So and I yeah I don't even maybe it wasn't actually sixty three but that was at least the rumor and going back to the German primary sources that that is what it says is sixty two anywhere from sixty two to sixty four illegitimate children. That's incredible. He's put he's um he's put the English kings to shame because I think the records Henry the First, which had he had about twenty, twenty two. Charles II oh was uh, was up there as well. So yeah, he's <laughs> he's had them off there. <laughs> Brilliant. So what piqued your interest in in Anna uh, to start with? When I first started really getting into Tudor history, or at least the history of the six wives, because I'd been interested in Elizabeth I for a long time before this, but when I started reading more about the six wives, Anna was always kind of glossed over, and it didn't make much sense to me because she was 24 by the time she moved to England, whereas Catherine of Aragon was, I think she was 15 or 16 when she moved to England, so Anna had a lot more life behind her by the time she be, she married Henry and moved. And so I figured there had to be something else going on with her. Maybe there was a way to bring more of her, what her life was like or what was happening in her life yeah. to the fore rather than just, oh yeah, this German lady from this tiny principality, which P.S. is not tiny, uh, moved to England yeah. and then got dumped six months later because she was ugly. It just, it didn't make much sense. And I didn't mm-hmm. think it was a very fair, thorough analysis of her life. That's brilliant because honestly, the last few lines you said there, I think is actually what most people in this country think, that she turned up, Henry thought she was ugly and tried to get uh, out of the marriage as soon as possible. So it's going to be interesting now. We should be able to dispel all of that. Um, Can you tell me, apart from um, dispelling some of these falsehoods, what you tried to achieve with with the book? What were your main aims? I think that that really was the main aim. Some of it was just correcting things. I don't think, I've not seen Anna's last name written down in any English source. Her last name was Fondemach. Mm-hmm. So she was Anna Fondemach, or it looks like Vondermark in English without the accent. So coming up with that, I was also able to find out her true birthday, her true date of birth. If you go back in the English sources, I've been able to trace it back to the lives of the, I think it's the lives of the Queens of England, and I can't remember the name of the source off the top of my head, but it's from the 19th century. Mm-hmm. And it randomly gives um, September 22nd of 1515 as a date of birth, traces that back to a French source, which doesn't even have on his date of birth. And so I was quite excited to come upon a primary source that was written when she was alive saying that her birthday was the 28th of June, 1515, which makes her, uh, which means that she and Henry share a birthday. So he was twice her age, exactly twice her age when they were married. So I, so, and it just, and from there, it just kept going and kept going and kept going and looking at the political situation and her hot headed younger brother, when he became Duke, it kind of became obvious that there was more going on with her than meets the eye. Okay, so we learned a little bit about uh, Anna's grandfather. What was uh, what was her upbringing like? Her court was had a heavy Burgundian influence. So her, I believe it was her great grandfather John or Johann the First had married a Burgundian princess, and he was raised at the Burgundian court. And he sent his son Johann the Second, Anna's grandfather, 
to be raised at the Burgundian court as well. So a lot of these traditions were brought to uh, the United, or excuse me, not the United Duchies, but Cleves Mark. And so she was raised in something called the Fallensima, which the Fallensima means the women's room or the ladies' room, but it can also refer to the entire collection of women. So the Fallensima had like a mirror of the main noble court and all the women and the young girls spent their days in there learning practical things like how to cook, how to run the books, basically, how to repair clothing and how to embroider and there were no men allowed in there during the day unless there was a governess available and only for a short period of time. It was more that the women would come out in the, in the afternoon to be with the main court for a couple hours at a time. Yeah. And no one over, no men over the age of 12 worked in the Falunsima unless they were physicians. And even then they were only allowed in, um, excuse me, before, before nighttime, basically, because the doors to the Falunsima would be locked at night. And there was only one person in the court who had those keys by ordinance in Cleves Mark. And physicians could go in any time of day or night. It just depended on what was needed. Of course, if someone was having a medical emergency, they would let the physician in. But otherwise, the women were kept very, very excluded. And this wasn't, this isn't to make it sound like they were isolated in, in a negative way. There are reports not necessarily from honest court, but just generally from this found some tradition where women enjoyed being with other women all day. They would sing, they would dance a little, they would read. It's not that they were basically shut up in the walls of the castle. So Wow. That's incredible. Well, I didn't know that. Um was this common across Europe at the time? Very Germanic. Very, very yeah. Germanic. I'm not exactly sure where it started. I know I believe it was popular in Burgundy and I've seen it seen the Fallensima or, or a mirror, ladies' mirror court referred to for different regions across what is now Germany and parts of what is now Poland, but used to be German principalities back then. So I would say that it was, it, it became, it certainly became fairly common. And part of that was to protect the honor of the women. So there right. weren't chances to have illegitimate children for very high-born women. So of course we have Anna's grandfather, who is the perfect example of what happens if you don't guard <laughs> your women. <laughs> Um, but so she and the, and the daughters of the higher nobility and her noble cousins would have all been within this Fallen Sima. As a highborn woman, how does she escape the, um, the room that's locked? Did By getting escape? married. And even then women usually just kind of hung out in the Fallen Sima. And what was Anna's path, uh, in particular? So how old was she when she was able to leave the room? Well, she became engaged to Henry in 1539, and they, I think the formal wedding marital papers were signed then. So she was 24 years old, and she was 24 then when she moved to England a few years, or excuse me, a few months later in January of 1540. So she was raised there. She would have spent a lot of time with her mother and her younger sister, Amalia. Her elder sister, Zabilla, had married a Saxon prince in 1526 or 1527 when Anna was quite young Anna would have been 11 or 12 so she and her younger sister Amalia were in the Falunsima until the, the late 1530s then of course Anna moves away and then Amalia stays with their mother in the Falunsima and then eventually winds up raising their brother Wilhelm's daughters in the Falunsima as well because Amalia never married anyone. So how did how did Henry King of England find Anna? You probably have the choice of any high-born woman in the whole of Europe. So why did he choose Anna? He had met 
Anna's father, I recently discovered back in 1522, her father had gone to the English court as part of the entourage of Charles V. And so he was already familiar with the court of Cleves and also with the United Duchies. So Anna's dad was the Duke of Cleves Mark. And when he married Anna's mother, who was the only child of the Duke of Ulichberg, he gained the Duchies of Ulichberg and in 1521 put them all under the same mantle and gave them the title of the United Duchies of Ulich, Cleves, Berg, Mark, and some other things. Yeah. So I'm going to refer to it as the United Duchies. So Cleves was not, the, the United Duchies or Cleves were not just this strange, random territory mm-hmm. that Cromwell stumbled upon. I think that Anna, first, Anna and her sister Amalia first came to Henry's attention in mid to late 1538, which is when Henry was starting to look for a bride. The French weren't very, very amenable. What am I trying to say? Amenable, excuse me, uh-huh. to Henry marrying one of their French women. And then also Henry wanted to marry Christina of Denmark, who was actually Charles V's niece. And she was originally intended to be a bride for Anna's brother, Wilhelm, but she was not, Christina was not very interested in marrying Henry and her aunt. Maria of Austria, who was the regent of the Low Countries at this point, just was trying to protect her niece because Christina was only 16. So that's a slightly different story. But there weren't a whole lot of eligible brides that were coming up. And Henry, of course, wanted to have a good political alliance, a strong political alliance. And so when we look at the United Duchies, they took up a massive part of Western Central Germany, what is now Germany, and the territory also takes a part of the Netherlands, what are the modern day Netherlands. So this is not some tiny little place that was just randomly picked out. I think there was also the attraction for Cromwell that Anna's brother-in-law, the elector of Saxony was a very, very Lutheran prince and was very pro reformation. And he had also established the Schmalkaldic league or the Protestant league. And I Mm -hmm. think there was hope that Henry would be allowed to join this, which was a little bit foolish on Cromwell's part because there had been a moratorium on allowing people to join the Schmalkaldic League. But I think that's how, somewhat how and why Anna came to the attention of Henry. I think that Henry's ambassadors were actually at the court in Brussels or Mechel when they first wrote to Henry about Anna. So we have a young Anna. She's about 24. She's being whisked over to, to England. Can you give me an idea of what she would have maybe thought about the marriage? Because she would have being entering a new country, I assume she wouldn't have much or any knowledge of English and brand new culture, and she's still pretty young. Um, can you give me an idea of what Anna might have been feeling about that, uh, about the marriage? She was excited. She was very excited, and she loved rubbing it in her brother's face <laughs> that he was just a petty German prince and that she was going to be queen of an entire country. So I think the population of the United Duchies at around this time was about 400,000 people, whereas in England, and don't quote me on this, I think this is correct, but I think it was about three or four million people in the entire country of England. And also, Anna was even elevated above her sister, Zibilla, who was an electress of Saxony for the same reason. So, um, in Germany was the Holy Roman Empire, or part of the Holy Roman Empire at this time, so electors and dukes had the Holy Roman Emperor above them, but as a queen of England, there was no one above Anna, socially speaking. Yeah, good point, actually. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't think about that side. I just sort of maybe had been a bit, a bit vulnerable, a bit nervous, and she, she was 
very excited. What would the meeting have been like when we first met? Because you've got a 24-year-old and you've got a king who must have been pushing... How old was he pushing 50 at this point? 48. He was 48. 48. So you've got 48-year-old Henry, who at this stage I'm sure wasn't in the best of shape. What would their reaction to each other have been, do you think? Anna had excellent manners. She had excellent manners. She was very well composed as a person. And we see examples of this and anecdotes of this throughout her life. She was a tall woman. So she was probably about, I do feet and inches. I'm sorry, but she was probably about five foot nine, five foot eight, five foot nine and curvy. Okay. I'm just, I can't do meters (laughs) to save my life. So, (laughs) um, but, um, so yeah, she was about five, eight or five, nine. So she was very tall. She was curvy. She, I don't, she was regarded as being a beauty in her own country in the United Duchies and her elder sister Isabella was considered to be one of the most beautiful German princesses at the time. I think for England at first, it was difficult to really see Anna's beauty because her style of dress, while not unknown to the English people was still a lot more foreign than let's say the French style of dress. So when they first met, Anna was not expecting to have a royal visitor, and Henry did go secretly at first. This is from the German account, and it's not really said exactly when he reveals his identity, but he did give her a very, very nice gift. He gave her a crystal goblet that had gold, a gold lid and a gold hood on it that was encrusted with diamonds and rubies, and this is all in the German account. You don't see this at all in the English account, and the German right. account was written days after they met each other. And I think it was written within a couple of days of them marrying on January 6th uh-huh. and they got along fine. And at this point, Anna probably knew some English that it wouldn't surprise me if she had started to learn a little bit before she moved to England. And then of course she was hung up in Calais, I think for three weeks before she came. So she could probably at least exchange pleasantries with Henry. Right. Okay, brilliant. So they're all, um, they have a marriage, they're all, I wouldn't say, would you say loved up at this point, or would you just say they're getting along cordially? What um, is their marriage like to begin with? From what we have, there's no evidence other than what's given at for purposes of the annulment that they didn't get along or that they didn't consummate the marriage. Mm-hmm. Everything leading up to her being sent away to Richmond seemed fine and seemed normal. She adopted the French or English style of dress. So it wouldn't surprise me if there's a portrait of her out there wearing French or English style clothing. And it's a portrait of an unknown woman because we just don't realize it's her. So she assimilated very well with the court. She was, by all accounts that I've read, she was very well liked and she, she did fine. How would you compare her to the previous wives of Henry? Do you know much about the previous wives and how they're relationships were compared to Anna? Not as in as much detail. So yeah. I think that she was probably somewhat of a blend of Catherine of Aragon and Jane Seymour's personalities. I think that Anna tried to be very easygoing. I think that she observed the maxim of least said, soonest mended. And I think that she, if she didn't agree with Henry, I heard this somewhere, so this might not be accurate, but I'm under the impression that she adopted the position that if she didn't agree with Henry on something during their marriage or even during their friendship afterwards, that she wouldn't flat out tell him what she thought so much as she would say she didn't know or she wasn't sure. So she did a very good job playing the part of of noble housewife, if you will. She sounds great so far. I'm just wondering where it all goes wrong and, and how that 
unfolded because it was inside six months. By July, it was done, wasn't it? Well, their marriage never really should have gotten off the ground. Unfortunately, her younger brother, Wilhelm, who was, I think, 22, because he's about 13 months younger than Anna. He was 22 or 23. He was 22 when he became Duke of the United Duchies, and then 23 when Anna and Henry got married, because he became Duke in February 1539, had his July birthday, and then Henry and Anna were married, or their paperwork was signed later that year. He had this idea that he really wanted to hold on to this one piece of territory called Gelders that was gifted to him by the Duke of Gelders. And the Duke of Gelders didn't have a right to do that because Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor, had a stronger hereditary claim and some, some other things. So in total, about five different avenues to claim the Duchy of Gelders. But instead, Uh the, the current Duke, when he passed away against the advice of Anna and Wilhelm's dad, left it to Wilhelm and he accepted it. And so the emperor was pretty ticked off about this and was trying to play nice with Wilhelm at first because traditionally speaking, Anna's family had a really good relationship with Charles V. And so in 1539, I think it was a godsend for Wilhelm that the King of England's like, Hey, let me marry one of your sisters. Cause then Wilhelm was allied with England also with Saxony, which had its own bone to pick with the emperor. But then in December, as early as December of 1539, Wilhelm was going behind Henry's back and trying to create a French alliance as well. And so the news of that started coming out more and more and more. And at around the same time that Anna's marriage was annulled, Wilhelm's engagement with Francis I of France's niece, Jeanne d'Albray, was confirmed. And the French king kind of abandoned Anna's brother. And so her brother got his butt kicked by the emperor. And the reason why Anna stayed in England was because it was, would have been too dangerous for her to travel home. Right. Cause then after he kicks, after the emperor kicks her brother's butt, he then goes up to Saxony and kicks her sister's butt. So Anna, Anna's in Richmond castle. Um, mm-hmm. how's she treated and what kind of happens after that with regards to Anna and with regards to, to Henry? She's treated very well. Henry sent her away allegedly because he wanted her to be protected from illness. It was summer. It was hot out. And Richmond Palace, I recently looked at old engravings of it. This was a serious palace, like on Mm. par with Hampton Court. It was a huge building. And so she was sent there. It was, I think it was halfway between St. James's and Hampton Court, if I remember correctly, right on the Thames. And I think she was sent there on June 24th. So that was the anniversary of Henry's coronation way back in 1509, but also it was right before their joint birthday. So maybe he said something to her. I'm just speculating. I have no proof of this, but maybe he said something to her about them celebrating their birthdays together later that week. Who knows? Um, But she was treated very, very well. Her, the main chancellor of Cleves, named Heinrich Ba, known to English speakers. Well, not even to English speakers, but just generally he went by the name of Olesleger. I don't necessarily know why, but that's how I'm going to refer to him as as Olesleger. So her main counselor, Olesleger, said, hey, Anna, there's this convocation nonsense going on to see if your marriage is still valid. Do you want anybody to go there on your behalf? And Anna said, no, I know my marriage is fine. I know that there's no issues with it and there's no encumbrances and I trust my lord the king and i love him and i know he's going to do the right thing because we one of the other grounds upon which henry tried to have the marriage annulled was this alleged pre-contract with the duke of lorraine's son and that was actually extinguished in 1535 right 
but they hadn't received the full copy of it yet. And so they were having this hush-hush convocation to have the marriage annulled and going through it very quickly so that nobody on the continent, like the emperor, like Anna's brother, would find out what was going on and stop them. Considering um, Henry's record of how he treated his wives, was Anna scared? Was she worried about what was going to happen? I'm going to, in part, answer a question that you're not asking. One thing that I always see is that Anna's lucky she didn't have her head cut off yeah. and things like that. She had no reason to fear that, and I don't know why it's common to, to see that. Oh, you know, she, she could have had her head chopped off. Well, no, there was no reason for it. Mm-hmm. So I do think that she was scared for a multitude of reasons. She's a foreign princess in a foreign country. She cannot go home because there's a war brewing between her brother and the Holy Roman Emperor and possibly France. So it was just dangerous for her to go home. And she's trapped. She's trapped in England. And now she went all this way to become queen and she is reduced to nobody. And that would have been terrifying. And when when she first found out about the annulment, she fell to the ground and wept and shrieked and screamed. And it was very couth of Charles Brandon, who was one of the people who went to announce this to her. They had a German translator there. And when Charles Brandon, I believe it was him, wrote to Henry to say, hey, Anna didn't take the news well, but obviously it's because the translator didn't translate what we said right. So we had him write it down. So I think that was more an opportunity for Anna to process things and kind yeah. of save face a little bit. But yeah, she was really, really upset. She was very upset. And it, I'm sure it was a, a terrifying, confusing time for her. So two questions. Why do, why do you think Henry treated... It sounds like a bit of a... Um... A callous question. Why did Henry treat her well? Because we know his reputation. And secondly, because he could have he could have um he could have ignored her, he could have set her aside quite easily, surely. And second of all, what did Henry what did Henry do next? I think he genuinely loved her. And right. I think that he also remembered what his first wife, Catherine of Aragon, went through between Catherine's first marriage to Arthur Tudor and then her marriage to Henry himself, where Catherine was basically abandoned in England and no one would provide for her. And so she was very, very impoverished and had a difficult time maintaining her household. And I'm guessing that Henry remembered that and that he didn't want to do that to Anna. And Anna was basically a victim of the political machinations of her brother. And I think that Henry recognized that he couldn't send her home because if he's the one that sent her home and God forbid she was captured or worse on the way back, he would be responsible for it. And that's also why her brother never brought her back. Right. So, so Henry's, Henry's annulled his next marriage. Something tells me he's not out of the marriage business. No. So he married Catherine Howard very quickly afterwards. And Catherine Howard, I think out of all of Henry's wives was somewhat the perfect victim from what I can tell. And I am, I am not an expert on the other Queens and I just, I've really only studied Anna, but from what I can tell, Catherine Howard was an orphan and her Mm -hmm. uncle was a powerful Duke of Norfolk. And he was able to say, Hey Henry, you should just marry my niece. And then by marrying Catherine Howard so quickly, it made it pretty much impossible for Henry to be forced to take back Anna. So by the time the news would have reached the Holy Roman Emperor and Anna's brother, Henry was already married to Catherine Howard. So there's nothing anyone could do because they'd have to have that marriage result in divorce or an annulment and then make Henry take back Anna. So the marriage of Catherine Howard, is this going to work out? 
It doesn't. Unfortunately, <laughs> Catherine was a, a victim of the times and she was a teenage bride and she behaved like a teenager or a woman in her early 20s. And that didn't work so well for Henry. So she was imprisoned and later beheaded. And during this time, there was fresh evidence brought from the United Duchies to show that Henry could lawfully marry Anna and that there was nothing impeding their marriage. And so there was a very brief moment in time where Anna was very excited and very hopeful that she might become Queen of England again. It's also around this time that you see rumors that Anna had a child with Henry, which is absolutely not true. So she, what stopped uh, the... Sorry, go on, carry on. Oh, I, I was just going to say, so she was found to be holding a baby boy in, over the winter of 15, I want to say 41 to 1542, I think is right around January or February. And this rumor got back to court that Anna had given birth to Henry's illegitimate child. But what had actually happened was Anna had been very ill. She had suffered from stomach illnesses off and on throughout her life. And it's thought that she probably died from stomach cancer or, or some sort of abdominal ailment. And one of her maid servants, or I shouldn't say maid, but one of her ladies brought her their baby that they just had for Anna to hold and to cheer her up. But that, of course, was fresh, exciting gossip because Henry had imprisoned <laughs> Catherine Howard and everyone liked Anna and maybe she'd be queen again. And, oh, maybe she had an illegitimate child, which that's not true. <laughs> <laughs> I love centuries old gossip. It's great. Oh, um, it is fabulous. So she, so Anna doesn't doesn't get the marriage, doesn't get her second marriage to, to no. the king. Is she allowed to move on? Is is there anything there to marry someone? Is she allowed to kind of move on with her life? That's a very big gray area. So I'm not sure who would have the ability to give permission for her to marry. I'm not sure if that would have fallen upon her brother still, because had she returned to Germany, then it absolutely would have been his responsibility, or yeah. if it would have been Henry's. We do see during this time that Wilhelm is desperately trying to get their youngest sibling, Amalia, married and there's just she never winds up marrying anyone there's just no good matches but the other thing we have to look at for Anna is she's the king's sister and who wants to take on the responsibility of marrying the king's oh, sister no. so we saw the marriage of Margaret Tudor to the king of Scotland and then yeah. I, I think a more famous marriage would be Mary Tudor who went and married Charles Brandon behind Henry's back and Henry was real mad about that yeah um and also did Henry want to put up a dowry for Anna yeah so it doesn't bode well, does it? So what does she do instead? She lives her life. Mm -hmm. There was a short period of time. I think that she did hope throughout the rest of 1541 and all of 1542 and up until July 12th of 1543 that she would be able to remarry Henry. So mm -hmm. I'd like to talk a little bit about some other reasons why Henry marries Catherine Parr. So this yeah. was, that's his last, last wife and actually the day that we're recording this today is the anniversary of their marriage. Oh. But it's um, I think the English sources show that it was a bit more of a love match for Henry. He Catherine Parr was a bit older. I think she was in her early 30s when she married Henry. But the other thing that we have brewing in the background is you have Wilhelm and Charles V going to war. And so Wilhelm is writing Henry and saying, hey, remarry my sister and ally yourself with me against the emperor. And the emperor is saying, hey, Henry, I want you to either ally with me or at least agree not to support Cleves. Yeah. So in the height of the Cleves War, which took place in 1543, Henry conveniently marries Catherine Parr. And so what that did, aside from providing stability to the kingdom and as far as Henry possibly having more heirs, is 
it made it so that Henry didn't have to ally with either the emperor or Wilhelm. So that was, I think that marriage was even more devastating to Anna because I think she was smart enough to figure out what was happening. And so at that point, she, she went to court on and on, off and on throughout Henry's reign, but that was really the last nail in the coffin. I think when Anna realized that this is it, she's just living in England now and she was living very well in England. And I think that she was probably better off and more able to enjoy her life in England than she would have been living in the fallen at her brother's court. But that, that would have been pretty devastating. And then two months later, her brother just completely is destroyed by the emperor and her mother passes away and then her brother has to capitulate to the emperor at the end of the summer of 1543. Right. So it's not, it's not going great for her family. How was her relationship with Henry's children? We don't have much evidence of, actually there might not be any evidence of a relationship with Edward VI. I don't know that, that she met him or if she did, I don't know how many times she met him. She did interact with Elizabeth and Mary. And of course, when Mary becomes queen, there's direct evidence of Anna and Mary, or excuse me, Anna and Elizabeth and, and Mary interacting with each other. Anna was back at court in the early part of Mary's reign. So it seemed like they all got along well. Mary was only about six months younger than Anna. So they were very close in age. During Edward VI's reign, I'm not sure if this has so much to do with Edward VI as it does with, uh, oh gosh, I can't remember his name. Edward Seymour. Sorry, I'm really bad at knowing English stuff sometimes. (laughs) Um, He was the Lord Protector. They didn't really care about Anna. And so she was constantly asking for the money that was due her that Henry had promised her. And at one point there was a flippant remark about, oh, maybe we should just wed Anna to Thomas Seymour, but nothing ever came of that. So I think that she had a good relationship from what I can tell with Mary and Elizabeth. And I just think that she was some afterthought to Edward. Right. That makes sense. After Henry's, after Henry's death, does she have any, any significant role left or does she, does she just kind of fade away? And how does, how does she, uh, how does she die? Her life's a bit obscure. So she, lived at her various properties. Occasionally, I think she would go on progress to visit them. She, for example, she owned a property in Lewis, England. It's called the Anne of Cleves house. There's no evidence that she actually went there, but she, there are other places I've, I'm told in the UK called Anne of Cleves house or on it or something along those lines. And mm-hmm. she owned all of them. And there were some of them that she passed through the area I'm not sure how often this happened, but it's something that she did do occasionally. She would come to court. I don't think she ever really came to court during Edward's reign, or at least it's not spoken about. She did come to court in the beginning of Mary's reign, but then kind of had a falling out with Mary. She attempted to have Mary or to suggest one of Anna's cousins to marry as a potential husband. And then there was the Wyatt Rebellion and Anna, I can't remember exactly what it is and I detail it better in my book, but she did something that made Mary mad. And so Anna just kind of fell off a bit into obscurity. And then when she passed away, Mary made sure she had a grand funeral befitting her rank as the King's sister. Right. How and when did she die? She died in July of 1557. She became noticeably ill and it was not getting better. If I remember correctly, as early as April of 1557. And so she wrote her will. She 
was at the manor, the um, palace in Chelsea. I'm not saying it right, but she was at Chelsea. She was in the building there. Uh-huh. And that's where she passed away. She had left her best jewels to Mary. She left her first best jewel to Mary and her second best jewel to Elizabeth. And then uh-huh. she left things to Catherine Willoughby and to other members, like her German cousins that came over from Germany and stayed on with her in England or were there for the most part in England. And then she uh-huh. left some things to her sister, Amalia, who is still alive. Her sister, Zabilla, died about four years before Anna did. And Uh she left some things to her brother, Wilhelm. And there was no autopsy conducted, but it's thought, like I had mentioned earlier, that she died from some sort of abdominal illness. She did frequently take ill in the last few years of her life. And so they wrapped her body in a sear cloth or they seared her body. So that's when they wrap it in in a cloth dipped in wax. They put it in a lead casket and then a tomb was created for her in Westminster Abbey. And she's the only one of Henry's Queens that's buried there. And she's buried on the South side of the altar. And it's not mentioned in the tour the last time I took it. So when you're looking at the altar or standing Mm -hmm. in front of it, it's this low stone tomb off to your right. Right. I'll bear in mind when it is, I'm I'm moving down South. Mm -hmm. So I'm trying to get around everything and it's not cheap. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's not. No. So after after writing your book, why what would you say is the main reason why we should pay attention to, to Anna, particularly maybe as a historian in, in 2020? I think it shows how interconnected England was with continental politics. And I think that that's overlooked because during Henry's reign, England was still kind of just this little dinky country off in the in the middle of the Atlantic, mm-hmm. whereas by Elizabeth's reign, England's really starting to become more of a powerhouse. And I think that looking at how much Henry had to worry about international politics shows that England was more of a burgeoning force during his reign than perhaps has been realized. And I think it also shows us, hey, when you're looking at someone who comes from a different country, it's important to look at their country's records as well. I, mm. I researched and wrote this book from the German perspective. And I don't know for sure, but it wouldn't surprise me if I'm the first person to do that. And that's made all the difference, because if I just looked at the English records and took them all at face value, which is what's been done for the past 500 years, I would think, oh, Anna was ugly ugly, and Henry didn't like her, so he dumped her. But when you look at what was happening with her country and the German reports of everything, it paints a very, very different picture. Absolutely. And, and through this interview and your, your other interviews, uh, you're teaching me as as an Englishman, and I'm sure many of my um, compatriots about Anna. So that's that's really good. That's what we want as historians, definitely. I appreciate <laughs> the different perspectives. Now we're going to go on something completely different. I'm going to ask okay. you what you think Anna would have been like on a date. <laughs> on a date, what would Anna have been like on a date? I think that she would have been. I think she would have had very good manners. I also like to think of Anna as being the queen of shade. And I explain this more in my book, but there is pretty good evidence of this um, in her interactions with Catherine Howard. But I think she probably would have been a bit witty and sly, but also would have been wise enough to know when to hold her tongue. Oh, and what did she say to Catherine Howard? Have you got any quotes? It's not what she said. It's how she behaved. Right. So the first time she's brought back to court in front of Catherine Howard, who, of course, is a few years younger than Anna and who was one of Anna's maidservants, Anna just prostrates herself in front of Catherine and 
English historians, from what I can tell, have interpreted this as Anna accepting her diminished position. But the way I see it is I think that Anna was trying to embarrass Catherine. And I think that she was trying to make this teenager who usurped her position feel very, very uncomfortable. But because of how Anna was behaving, no one could fault her for for being so polite and Uh and so observant of the new queen's position. Right. And there are a few other things that I go into in my book. So it's it's more her behavior. You can kind of see it. And there are some things she said to Henry that were a double-edged sword where you could tell that, oh, well, you know, Anna, that makes a lot of sense that you're saying that. And there's no venom in that. But then if you look at it the other way, it's like, mm, you're calling Henry a liar. I see what you did there. <laughs> so she was clever that way. These parts, these little um, bits of evidence that you find when you're researching, you just find the odd quotes and you can sort of relate to these people a little bit. That's what I love about about studying history when you find even from the most important people you find quotes that that make you laugh it's great oh yeah oh yeah (laughs) so and if anyone's interested in picking up a copy of my book it's Anna Duchess of Cleves the King's Beloved Sister you can get it on Amazon you can get it from Waterstones I think that the Waterstones in Canterbury has some signed copies because I've done a couple Ah, talks there so they do have signed copies and for people in the U.S., again, you can get it on Amazon. You can get it at Barnes & Noble. And I am researching my second book, which is has a working title of Children of a House of Cleves. And it looks a lot more at Anna's father and what he did and her brother and her sisters. So it's almost like a part two to this book. And what's exciting about it is her brother, Wilhelm, didn't die until 1592. Oh, so, really? Yeah. Yeah, he lived until 1592. He was in his 70s when he died. Wow. So in the meantime, um, if you're not able to pick up, excuse me, if you're not able to pick up a copy of the book, and I should say the hardbacks are almost sold out, but the paperback is being released in November, so you can pre-order that. I think it's also available on Kindle still. I do have a website. It's called maidensandmanuscripts.com. So you can go there. It looks at Reformation history broadly and people from all over Western Europe at the time, and there are a couple articles about the Ottoman Empire and also about a um, an African dynasty as well. Uh-huh. And I have I'm on Twitter at HR Darcy History, I believe. And then I'm also on Facebook, Heather R. Darcy Historian. And I have a private group if you want to ask to join that's called Tudor Renaissance and Reformation History. That's also on Facebook. Lovely. That sounds great. Well oh uh, have you got a vacuum cleaner going in the background? Uh there's an <laughs> air conditioner that I think is going. <laughs> <laughs> don't worry um that's fine just to wrap it up with this question i do like asking this one um it might be a bit of a popular one i think rosie from history a asked me something similar which is a great show you should check it out for everyone listening invite three people to a dinner party from history dead or alive who would you invite i would invite elizabeth the first mm-hmm. just because i really i really admire her i who else would i invite Something to bear in mind, you can either go down the path of I don't care if they get on, or you can go down the path of they need to kind of, we need to have a bit of banter between each other. I prefer just to put figures in there that are going to um, cause a bit of drama, to be honest. But <laughs> well, if we're going to cause drama, I mean, I think I'd have to invite Elizabeth, Anna and Henry. That would be quite <laughs> quite an interesting dynamic of love and hate, I would say. Yeah. But um. Yeah, them, or I really like Maria 
von Habsburg, Archduchess of Austria, who was the regent of the Netherlands. I think she's very interesting as well. I, I thought of Eleanor of Aquitaine just because oh, yeah. I really admire. Uh, yeah. I think I'd put her in. William mm-hmm. Marshall is fantastic. See, I'm medieval, mm-hmm. you know, I just picked yep, medieval yep. characters. Uh, Richard Lionheart and John, put those two on the same table. Yep. Interesting. Uh, and I'd like to meet the Queen, even though she's alive. Just <laughs> would like to meet the Queen, but you'd need to get her a little bit drunk, I think, just to, just to loosen her up. Whether that would work or not, who knows. That was Heather Darcy. Thanks a lot to Heather for coming on the show. I really enjoyed the interview. You can get a book right now on Amazon and in shops. Anna, Duchess of Cleves, The King's Beloved Sister. Join us next time as we resume the Kings and Queens of England with Edward III. Goodbye for now.